Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Kumi Silva. And Kumi, we've been friends for, I think, 25 years. Give yeah, we met when we were 10. <laughs> well, you were. But <laughs> we've not seen one another since... Not since Abbey Row was released. No, that's not true. Not since Salon became Sri Lanka. Indeed. But because you've got a Salon poster behind you. Mm-hmm. But probably about 20 years. And it really has been 20 years. I've always felt as though our friendship was there despite that absence of connection. And I'm really excited. I was truly thrilled when you agreed to come into the podcast today. So thank you so, so much. Your work, when I met you, I loved what you were working on. And since then, it's been a continued inspiration to me, as I'm sure has been the case for many others. Yeah. Thank you, Toby. That was such a wonderful, warm welcome. It's always so fun to hang out with you. So I wanted to ask you, we've had half an hour of gossip, by the way, folks. So we've got (laughs) the gossip bit out of the way. But there could be more gossip. Who knows, right? But, Kumi, what I wanted to ask you first is to share with us, if you would, our very international audience, not all English's first language, of course, something of what is dynamizing or retarding or interesting or propelling you these days. I think that's a really, uh, all those words are actually quite interesting. And I'm thinking about that because I'm thinking about how to approach the response in relationship to the affect of those words. Um, And I I was thinking that a lot of times I'm angry (laughs) these days um, or filled with rage and outrage um, Mm. at different things. Um, and it's partly propelled by the work that the research that I'm interested in doing and kind of working on now. Um, I'm working on a project that is looking at the relationship between love and cruelty. Um, oh, and, wow. And uh, I had kind of um, told myself when the last um, single authored author book came out that I was not going, I was going to write a romance novel or something, just something really fluffy so that I didn't have to sit there, you know, reading diabolical things about the state of the world. Um, but apparently um, that was not in the cards. First of all, I never got around to writing a romance novel. So that didn't happen. Um, and Instead, I just continued to collect stuff on terrible, terrible things and kept thinking about terrible, terrible things. Um, so when I when you ask me what's dynamizing me, what's mm. I, part of it is that I um I don't know it's it's a kind of suspended state between action and inaction of being frozen in this frame of um a combination of angst and um outrage and trying to kind of hold on to some kind of um, hope that there is something that will kind of correct this, but also really intellectually knowing that we're kind of on a really not so great path to 
in every part of the world, actually, I think, not just in the US. Prof, if I could interject there in a, in a biographical moment, on the one hand, you've spent much of your adult life in a city, in a country, sorry, built on racism and slavery and exploitation of first peoples and immigrants. On the other hand, you grew up in a country that survived despite the horrors of British colonialism. I wonder if you might reflect for us for a moment about the transition between those experiences, if I've, if I've predicated them correctly. Yes. So I, so in, in between, it's, um, also interspersed with a few years spent in West Africa and, um, in Britain as a very young toddler. Um, and I, so I feel like my relationship in all of these geographies to like the structures of power that, um, kind of organize our bodies and identities are, um, they're deeply felt. I'm sure it's deeply felt by everybody, right? If you're in those geographies. And I, and I think it's really easy for me to intellectualize the, the ways that, you know, post-colonial Sri Lanka or West Africa, I, was, I lived in Liberia, um, which is also a, a weirdly post-colonial, but resettlement state, right? Yes. Um, Very and, unusual history. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then uh, moving to the United States, how all of those places have, you know, I, I tell my students these stories and say, you know, this is what informs my research. But I have also perhaps most acutely felt the transition of all of that and my thinking in my transition from uh, living up north in the United States, in Massachusetts, to North Carolina, um, because prior to coming to North Carolina, I had only visited it once before um, for a weekend and had all of the kind of preconceived notions of the American South. Um, and I go back and I read Brown Threat, for example, which I wrote and finished up while I was living in Massachusetts. And I contrast it to the way I'm thinking and writing now. And I tell myself often, I have such a Northern voice in Brown Threat. There's such a abstraction from the arguments of making and trying to make about race and identity. Um, and this project, this new project that I'm working on um, is very much kind of sedimented in the way, in the bodies and the ways and politics of the South or informed by them. They're not necessarily set in the South. So the basic argument I'm trying to make in this Love Cruelty book is that, and this goes back to your original question about like, how do does this travel impact one's own sense of self is um, I'm basically making the argument that we only recognize love by the extent of the cruelty we extend in its name. So the greater the cruelty, the greater the declaration of love. Um, and that this is really in the United States coming up. And I, I think I'm able to see this more in the complexity of the Southern in of living in the South is that um, that this is part of it is like comes out of settler colonialism and slavery 
And I'm also recognizing the ways that it resonates with my own upbringing and the kinds of ways that I grew up um, thinking through ideas of power, of race. Even at this, my parents were progressives. They were, um, they spoke truth to power whenever, (laughs) often, Uh, but they, but still we grew up like really knowing what, um, who had power, who was, you know, who was valued, who wasn't valued. Um, and I, I, it's interesting for me to see the kind of abstraction of that here, but not as a post-colonial state, but one that is very much still based in settler colonialism and slavery. Sure. So if I could ask you to speak a bit more about Brown Threat, which is a very important book, I think. You said that you now see it as very northern. (laughs) You've experienced the southern United States. Could you speak to us a bit about the book in terms of what made it northern? I, I just think it's really, it's, I don't have any kind of deep theoretical insight. It's just a feeling actually. Mm-hmm. Sure. Of, like when I, um, I don't go, I, I don't think I've gone back and read it. Um, I just have had. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, I, I, um, have read little bits and pieces of it and I'm like that just sounds so disconnected in some, not disconnected, but it's a very theoretical mediation on race um, that doesn't always account. Um, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I didn't, I think in some ways I didn't, um, I, it's less engaged with the complexity of race, I think in the United States in terms of, I mean, I have one chapter on, you know, uh, black and brown times mm. and I'm realizing more and more that um, really that that thread could, like in my own work now, I run that thread through much more that this is, you know, um, if brown threat was, if the idea of a composite brown, like anybody could be brown at any time, um, is there um black people could not be brown and black was always black and i think that's something i'm kind of seeing in that work so moving away from that book but with a preoccupation that's there and is in some other work and you're sick of answering this question and sick of hearing But for listeners who are just outside this world, right, what the heck is brown? (laughs) Um, See, that's the thing. That's when I come (laughs) back to that. I'm like, I don't, I, so I always thought of it as something um, that was, but somebody asked me this when I first joined here and I said, it's a metaphor. Yes, and it is, and and they were like, "Well, what do you mean by a metaphor?" I'm like, "A metaphor, as in, like they're like just straightforward, like just like when we say like that's a metaphor for something else." I'm like, "Yes," and and uh, this is a former grad student who said, "So there's nothing else there." 
I'm like, what else is there to do with that? Because that's its power, because it has the idea that um, I think the idea of brownness or this idea that we're some kind of like some in-between sense of identity that is malleable is really what Brown was about. It was the idea that it was neither black nor white. It was just this kind of composite identity that really comes from um, putting all kinds of conditions into a particular situation and then applying it to different bodies. So at any given time, those same numbers, I, I, I think in the book, I, not I think, I know I wrote it. Um, I um, call it a idiomathematical equation. It's kind of a ideological, it's ideological math, right? Like you put all of these things together and then you're like, oh, this person is a problem because of X, Y, Z. Um, so the, that doesn't really, I mean, I don't know. Does that sound like what I wrote when you reread the book? <laughs> no, it, it does. Tell me what I wrote. There's a um, moment, well, it, it begins with a very moving poem that you quote from another work of yours about the family, about life, and about being brown. Sorry for those noises. That's my younger daughter sending me stickers. Oh. You can hear little things. <laughs> And I can stop them on the phone, but I can't stop them. Oh, I don't think you should the stop them anywhere. No. I think that's lovely. I don't want to stop the images. I want to stop <laughs> the because I was rejected in my phone call earlier. So I need to get a little sticker to tell me that she still loves daddy. Oh. Anyway, back to the book. There's this very moving moment in which you write for Ruby and David, right, at the beginning of the book, citing another piece where you talk about being mixed, but not being in the official orthodoxy of the Americas. Yeah. I think that's very interesting. And I think there's somewhere in a special issue you co-edited where my recollection anyway is that you say, you and your co-editor, I think, we're not including Latina, Latino writers because this is, a different kind of brown? So I probably, um, it was kind of in response to the, so that's one of the things I grappled with in writing that book. And in retrospect, I, I wish I'd had a decade to kind of undo, take it apart and reconstruct it in some ways. But one of the things that I um, had wanted to do was to um, talk about it as outside of kind of what you call the orthodoxy of the like the constructions right that we have of recognition and to think about um what happens to people who fall outside of those things but also who are intimately still connected to those identities yes um, and i i think when i was writing that i was thinking that um it's not that just even statistically, right? Like we can identify kind of things that happen to people and we're really good at identifying things that happen to people if they fall into categories and we 
like explain that category and we say this is kind of in keeping with that category of identification. Um, and I was really interested in thinking about what happens when we don't fall into this, like people who don't fall into this or fall into this, but also fall into other categories and then have a new composite identity. And part of it was because I used the word, because I used the word brown, um, I had um, re like reviewers for a lot of my work come back and say, well, but you haven't cited, like, are you have, but you haven't cited X, Y, and Z who does stuff in Latinx studies or talked about uh, brownness amongst, you know, South American communities. And, and it was, but I would always kind of try to explain and say, well, I'm, I'm trying to also make this not about a group, though in some ways it does end up being about a group, right? Um, but it's about a group that is made into something um, more recently than when we were made into groups previously. Can I ask you then about another group that is used a lot in the United States? which is South Asia, mm -hmm. which really means India in the United States. It <laughs> yes. essentially obliterates, in terms of population numbers, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, mm -hmm. Bangladesh, et al., right? I mean, it means Hindu India, I think, in the U.S. Is that yeah. right, roughly? I think so. I mean, it's uh, shocking how often I'm told... I'm asked about India. Um, about which you know probably not that uh, much, right? Not very much. <laughs> uh, and then the follow-up when I say I'm from Sri Lanka, the response is, well, but it's the same thing. And, uh, yeah, so I, I think that's the thing. It's that when you say South Asia, it's also the construction of fields of study, right? And I think that's yes. um, Indian studies, South Asian studies, South Asian American studies, have all been really growing large fields. And a lot of this also has to do with the like global eco economics and political systems, right? Like with, you know, um, the ways that money flows back and forth for funding um, programs and all kinds of things. Um, and certainly the kind of um, impact that the, especially during the reign of, the 45th president of the United States, um, how so much of that was connected to politics in India and kind of established this whole idea of a dominant South Asian group. Um, so, yeah, I think it really does. Like, I don't think anybody, um, if you ask, I don't want to say anybody, that's a gross generalization, but uh, most people don't see like India is a representative space. And I, yeah. It feels that way to me. And I guess the other thing is, of course, that the middle class in the countries we've named speak better English than the English or the or US people do. <laughs> and so that, in a way, domesticates you guys and unifies you in the fantasy of the US world, academic world, right? Yes. Or so it's always seemed to me and to many other, I think, groups in area studies where English is not 
so common amongst the middle class. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I think, right? I think I'm right. But a special quality of Sri Lanka, it seems to me, and I'd love your comments on this, is not only its survival despite British colonialism, but also the the violent horrors of the last forty years. And I I wonder if you might comment on that in order to enrich people's understanding, perhaps, of Sri Lanka, both in its remarkable culture and politics and economics, but also in terms of this sectarian, in inverted commas, issue, and perhaps how that relates to the British. Okay, I'm going to try. I don't know how good a job I'm going to do, but I'm going to give this. It's a, a lot to ask. I realize this. <laughs> Prof K has um, been asked a lot just now. I um, I will say to. I'll start off by saying um, about the comment about um, India being kind of representative. Yes. As a precursor, I wanted to say that. In fact, I had a, a mentor when I had first started my research and I was thinking about even thinking, like kind of thinking through my dissertation research, who said um, I, I was going to do it on Sri Lanka on women's movements in Sri Lanka. And was I was told um, you really need to put India in there because people will not understand. <laughs> if, I'm sorry. Like, what, yeah, you did you <laughs> People can't see the way we're reacting or I'm reacting. Yeah, I know. This is appalling. I'm appalling. I don't wish to denounce your advisor, but that is appalling. Well, it was it was a mentor, uh, not um, yeah, but but who who said you know for it to be le- legible to a U.S. audience, you have to bring India into it. And granted, this was you know uh, several years ago, five years uh, ago at least, five years ago, yes, um, and. I, uh, and that really stuck with me. I, that, that has shaped a lot, I think, about how I think about my own research. Um, and I also have lived outside of Sri Lanka for 30 plus years. So that's a long time. Um, the, I think there are several things. Um, I, lo- I, I love my birthplace. I, it's beautiful. Um, it's a complex space. And I think that's the part that I find most endearing about it. Um, I think the class politics and the economic pol- politics are really interesting, especially after, um, you know, 40, 50 years of war. Um, it, the ways that the war restructured the country's economy is fascinating to me because as we know, people who do cultural studies often talk about this, that war is very profitable for some people and the rich just become very, very rich. Um, and then there is the corresponding kind of demise of the middle class, right? That happens uh, with war a lot of times. Um, the other part of it is that um, prior... so. British colonialism has framed conversations about Sri Lanka um, for a long time, but we often forget that just before the British, it was the Dutch, and just before the Dutch, it was the Portuguese. So it's actually about 700 years of European colonization. 
So the impact of that also within the country, uh, because we have different kind of ethnic groups that are not just kind of Tamil and Sinhalese that frame larger kind of geopolitical questions, but descendants of the Dutch, of the Portuguese, who are Sri Lankan, but who occupy a different class structure and social structure because of their connection to Europe. Um, and the ways that that power circulates mm -hmm. is, I think, fascinating and often, I think, something that I wish that people engaged more with because I know that that in itself is really unusual. Um, and it's also an island, right? It's this tiny little island with so much complexity in it. Um, the the war is over, I guess. But is war ever over? War never ends. Once you start, it's never over. War has never ended anywhere. Um, and um, I think... More spaces are open. The last time, I, and I, th oh, I think this was also one of the stories I started with in Brown Thread, that um, one of the ways that I thought about the United States and the politics of the United States was because when 9-11 happened, I was actually in Sri Lanka. And I remember my parents. Well, I that now, my, actually. Okay, yeah, yeah. My mom actually, like, she was, crying because she really for them this was the safest place in the world yeah. um and uh because they had lived through civil war in both sri lanka but also in liberia um and to see that loss and to kind of see her grief was very real and really illuminating for me in many ways and actually I had never that was when I first started keeping kind of notes and thinking about brownness and brown threat um, because my dissertation was on something completely different and I think I wrote an article out of it or something um, but this book was my side project that became the first book <laughs> that's fascinating so Prof, if I can veer somewhere else now, which is back to what you'd mentioned a few moments ago, which is the relationship between love and cruelty. It's another fun topic. <laughs> I know. You I love that. Please. <laughs> Constantly putting a smile on the world's face. One of my students called me a dream killer. Nice. She meant it as a compliment, but it was clearly not. Yeah. So can you share with us a little bit about a fascinating topic about which we all know both something and nothing and a lot? Um, so it's, a, it's um, something that I have been working through. It actually came out of a conversation and then a panel and then a kind of commentary special issue that uh, Marina Levina and I put together um, on Trump and cruelty. Yes, um, yes. and the 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 ways that cruelty functioned as um, his kind of mo. Uh, but it it got me. What I started thinking was that it's really that 
ability to wield cruelty and to get buy-in from it comes from this call to love, this idea of patriotism, this love of country, um, a love of family. So the idea that America should be safe for American families, at the same time, you are separating children at detention centers from their parents and their mothers and family members. Um, so you're able to kind of enact these extraordinary acts of cruelty in the name of securing the borders for Americans. So the book kind of looks at some of these like broader, those conditions, but I um, also look at kind of the ordinary and the everyday. One um, chapter is about, um, starts with um, a conversation I observed that unfolded over several days um, over a list of about a book salesman who came into a very progressive white neighborhood who happened to be black and how the conversation about him that then ultimately results in a, the neighborhood watch being reestablished as a security measure. Could you, can I cut in there and ask you to explain yeah. to listeners what Neighborhood Watch in all its horror so Neighborhood is. Watch is this organization that um, it's, you you get together with your neighbors and you patrol, you keep your neighborhood safe in its simple sense. It, it's connected, but the, uh, I go into it in detail that this has a history in, of course, colonial, um, like the settler colonial practices of keeping uh areas safe and that this is also connected to the and the neighborhood watcher the neighborhood watch members are trained and supported through the sheriff's office so there's a very much a kind of a military component to this um so part of it was that i was so interested in how quickly this conversation moved from this door-to-door salesman was super disruptive and perhaps rude to, well, for everyone's safety, we should put together the neighborhood watch. And this was in a very white progressive neighborhood where there are tons of Black Lives Matter signs. So part of my fascination is, is that, that contradiction that I see kind of framed through love and cruelty because it's this, the, the same impetus that uh, makes you put a Black Lives Matter sign in your front lawn apparently also allows you to think about protecting yourself from Black people who come to your door. Um, so, I, so it's a series of events and uh, anecdotes like that that kind of frame the book. I look at plants and the history of bamboo. Oh, arrival to the United States. Yeah, okay. Um, and again, how bamboo is kind of controlled and talked about versus something like English ivy, which is equally destructive, um, and the kind of economics of it. You can't buy bamboo except in specialty stores, um, in the United States, but you can buy English ivy, um, and they're used as ways to 
kind of create a particular aesthetic that bamboo is bamboo is not does not get used in the same way so there's a lot of it's it's like really insight to my rather i was i don't know is that a good british flighty my grandmother used to use that word um but flighty meant something else i should probably say by very schizophrenic brain that like moves from one thing to another and schizophrenic is very gringo very u.s very yankee i think flighty is wonderful so my very flighty brain i I love your grandmother saying that (laughs) prof one of the things in your description at the university of north carolina is that it says your cultural studies and something like interpersonal Mm -hmm. communication and that's not I think a very typical pairing, cultural studies and interpersonal communication. But there's something in the basic words, right, love and cruelty, that suggests the interpersonal world matters too. So could you speak about that conjunction that you're part of, if I read your website? Yeah. So I um, part of it is the way a department is structured, and I was hired as uh, um, my position was in um, transnational feminist theory. And this was an area that had a higher open. And while I'm not formally trained as an interpersonal scholar, um, my work and the way that I was doing it, like my research has, I do ethnography interviews, all kinds of things that mm-hmm. it fit methodologically within this area. Uh, but our department is also so critically focused and um, kind of framed by cultural theory that probably the primary identity would be cultural studies um, or is what I would claim. But I do think that methodologically interpersonal allows me to think in alongside. I I can use cultural studies, a cultural studies framework and think alongside interpersonal in ways that are productive for me. People outside the U.S., outside communication studies, who may have a sense of cultural studies, perhaps a strong one, but perhaps won't know too much about interpersonal communication. What the hell is it? Um, I, um, I think interpersonal communication is really about how um, social dynamics impact in the way that it's approached in our department. I know mm-hmm. there are, um, you know, as you and I have met up and been at many NCA National Communication Association conferences, and I know different departments have a different approach to it, but I know my colleagues who are doing interpersonal work, really outstanding interpersonal work, um, are looking at the relationship between kind of intimate relationships of like communicative relationships and the larger structures of power. So whether it's Mm. things like acts of uh, violence, hate speech, uh, things like that, that kind of come up in the everyday, but also how they're so embedded in the broader structure. That could be a, that's a very, you know, vague, but I and I again fully admit that interpersonal is very different in different departments. No, I think you've given a great explanation. 
On the other side of what you're listed as, cultural studies, one of the people that you cite in your work is Stuart Hall, a very important influence in cultural mm-hmm. studies, of course. Could you tell us a wee bit, Prof, about what in cultural studies jazzes you? What turned you onto it? What got you interested in it? And what continues to do so? Or the problems you see with it? Um, the I could stop. Well, I'm. Uh, that's now I'm like. See, this is where my flighty brain now has like seven answers. So now I have to kind of think through all of that. Seven. Oh. That's when we begin at <laughs> seven. Um, I for me, culture studies. Um, I will honestly say it gives me kind of a spaciousness to think through ideas and complex relationships in ways that um, other more kind of canonized areas cannot do. And that there is a, um, it it is most closely aligned to uh, my ethics and my interest in politics and uh, the things that I feel are important. I am interested in knowing the relationship between culture and power and the impact it has on people and culture studies is does exactly that. Um, and for me, that is really um, useful and productive and, and actually quite um, beautiful in so many ways. It's a strange thing to say about an area of study, but it is very, I think it's a really beautiful way of thinking um, and a really ethical way of thinking through things. Um, the part that I always struggle with is the ways that cultural studies becomes kind of canonized, which was one of Stuart Hall's big concerns when cultural studies moved to the United States, right? Um, and and there is, a, I think, a commitment to a kind of pedigree or a way of thinking that um, I, I am less interested in, I think. Um, I'm certainly happy for those who would like to do that, to do that if that's what makes them happy. Um, but for me, I love the openness of the mm. field, okay. um, what it provides, completely um, rejecting the idea that because it's so open that it is not rigorous in some ways. I know the criticisms are, have been there for eons. I don't know if that's it's even a thing in the field because I stopped paying attention to it. But uh, <laughs> um, but the idea that it doesn't have, like like that there's a kind of loosey-goosiness, for lack of a better word. But it's not. It's actually quite complex. And, and if you are doing the work and you're answering the questions, you are doing a lot of very rigorous work. Um, and I... And in doing that work, it's opening up areas for you that are fascinating to engage with. Prof, I've got two more questions for you, if I may. And then after that, I'd like to throw it open for you to subtract from what we've said or add something. Is that okay? That sounds great. So the first of my last two questions is about three isms. Okay. Should I write this down? I think you should. I think notes okay, must be I, I'm, taken. I'm getting a pen out. I'm you ready. Should be a, a good Sri Lankan girl yeah. and take <laughs> notes of, from, from what the white man is saying. 
I'm I have been trained well. I'm I'm ready. You're Go ready. Okay. Right hand, left hand on chin, right hand on pen or pencil. Yes. You're ready to go? So the, the, the three isms I wanted to ask you about are de, decolonialism, feminism, mm-hmm. Marxism. Discuss. <laughs> They're all good things. <laughs> um, I... Uh, I think decolonialism is a wonderful goal and a, obviously a fantastic project. Um, I again, it's I am really interested in the disjuncture between um, the decolonial work happening outside academia and what's happening in within academia. That is um, really about. There's a lot of like. The, the structure, the decolonial work gets absorbed into the structure, again, something similar to culture studies um, that can at times depoliticize it. And I'm kind of inter- fascinated by that. Um, so what happens to decolonial work when you're working within the colonial system of higher education? Um, and I think there, but I think it's a worthy goal to engage with and keep grappling with. Uh, feminism where did it what happened and where did it go in some ways right like what I I don't know I um, I think it's I think there's so many amazing ways of thinking that are um, that are there and coming up I'm, I'm especially kind of engaging a lot with black feminist theory to really understand again this is why being here this geographic location for me so has been so transformative and significant it's a it's a very it's it's a very personal um journey in many ways and i think that has uh been kind of it's so different reading somebody like Audre Lorde in the South than reading Audre Lorde in the Pacific Northwest at, at a university there, right? Um, and that, so all of those things have, are wonderful. So feminism is good. Decolonialism is good. Marxism, um, I have just been thinking about Marxism a whole lot because for a class I was teaching, we just read uh, Marx's 18th Brumaire. Mm. And I, it's such a stark reminder of, you know, what he talks about there is exactly what we see happening in the United States now with politics and elections and things like that. The idea that this, the, um, you know, the, the left kind of abandoned its working class, um, comrades and became complacent <laughs> and kind of forgot the kind of abandoned the plot I think um and then you so you can see why somebody because in that he talks about you know how Bonaparte's nephew gets elected and becomes a dictator Bonapartism yeah yes yeah, and that's exact because the working class rallied around him eventually because they were abandoned by the middle classes, the bourgeoisie after um, 
they got what they wanted and were established. And I, and and the fallout from that is, as we know, was not great. And um, so when I think about Marxism these days, that's what I'm thinking about. Like what, what, where does it lead us? Where are we going? What did Marx say that has so much relevance today to our lives? And and yet here we are barreling down on a free trade <laughs> going nowhere to between, yeah. Well, it's hard not to associate Bonapartism in some ways with Trump, very hard. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that. And my last question before handing over fully to you, Prof, is this conceit. I'm 24. Uh, it's not me. It's just a 24-year-old. I'm knocking on your door at the University of North Carolina. I'm saying, Prof, you probably didn't see me. I was a church mouse in the corner in your class on blah. But it was transformative for me and really important. I know you don't want this, but I want to become you. How do I do it? They don't want to become me, Toby. Come on. <laughs> it's a fantasy. Help me some stuff here, Prof. Um, how do you become me? I think you... Um, that's... See, it's very... Toby, I'm South Asian. It's very hard to talk about myself in those ways. <laughs> to how do you become me is um, you read, you follow your interests, you take risks, um, you believe in yourself and people think <laughs> you're saying crazy things and you enjoy what you're doing. And that's you, and and also my I'm a uh, glass half full cynic. A glass so, half full cynic, Prof. Can I just ask you one more question? Though I said that sure. would be my last. Could you share with us what it is about being South Asian that makes what I asked you an, an absurd question? <laughs> um, it's um, we're not encouraged to talk about ourselves in that way. To really think about like the idea that. Somebody would be interested in becoming me seems so far fetched to me. Um, you know, you know, yeah, just there Does are so many. Does it in any way to Britishness or is it completely separate? Because I think there's a British aspect. I think it's very that. British. I think it's very much because it's embedded in the education system, right? So mm-hmm. we are produced as subjects who are meant to listen and absorb instead of talk. This has been, I mean, I'm saying all of this after having talked for 45 minutes about myself, so I don't know what that, yeah. So, um, but I think there's something about that whole kind of practice that um, that you you have to, you know, you have to be sure of yourself, but you don't need to tell everybody about it. Which is very antithetical to American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a certain in the British incarnation a certain arrogance to it. Yeah. But there's also a subaltern aspect to it in the yeah. case of survivors of British colonialism. So, Prof, now that I've cheated and asked you three questions, 
as a finale. May I hand over to you and ask if there are things we've not discussed that you would like to mention? Um, I, I, so many wonderful things came out of this conversation. I can't imagine that we left anything out. I mean, of course, if we keep talking for like two more hours, it'll go on and on and on endlessly. <laughs> um, and we have been known to do that. So I'm going to just say that, um, there isn't anything right now, but I really loved this conversation. Thank you, Prof Kumi. You have energized me as an intellectual with all your ideas from probably the day we met. And <laughs> I've read much of your work in the past. And as I said, I revisited it for this occasion. And it's been a privilege both to have done that and also to have chatted with you. So thank you very much. Thank you, Toby.